The last Sunday evening we were in Revelation, we looked at Jesus Christ's letter to the church at Pergamos. So it is found in the paragraph from verse 12 in Revelation 2 down to verse 17. And we noted that Pergamos was the capital city of Asia Minor. It, because of that, had a temple there that was dedicated to uh, the Roman emperor. And so the cult of emperor worship, which was a huge pressure for all the Christians in Asia Minor, was particularly intense in Pergamos. And so those Christians who were faithful to their saviour, and that meant that they refused to pay homage to the emperor. That doesn't mean uh, that they didn't respect uh, the authorities. What it meant was that they wouldn't go to the temple and throw incense and acknowledge Caesar as God. They couldn't do that. And one of the members of the church at Pergamos, Antipas, had been put to death because of that stand that he had made. But even Christians that were not put to death, they were often denied access uh, into the uh, influential circles in society. Uh, they were not able to join in the different banquets. And that's the reference to uh, things sacrificed to idols. It was often in religious feasts uh, that they were not uh, involved in and the sexual immorality that went with that. Uh, if you think uh, this was only something that happened in uh, the times of the Bible, uh, let me remind you that even in India today, uh, when people uh, visit certain uh, Hindu temples, uh, there is uh, sexual immorality that takes place, justified uh, by the religion. And people uh, in their working uh, environments were denied promotion and maybe they weren't even offered jobs because uh, there would have been trade guilds like trade unions and part of being in such a guild was that you paid homage to uh, either the god of that particular work. We mentioned uh, the medical uh, god in uh, Pergamos uh, or to Caesar himself. So this was a highly pressurized environment for these believers to live in and stay faithful. And they were being influenced by a group called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. We came across them last time. We came across them before as well in the first letter. And these Nicolaitans taught the doctrine of Balaam, who was an Old Testament false prophet. And what Balaam did was not teach plainly that you go after other gods. He seduced, that's an important word, we'll come back to it later. He tricked with subtlety, like Satan in the Garden of Eden, as the serpent, subtly uh, seducing uh, Adam and Eve. And he seduced these faithful believers uh, and uh, used these Nicolaitans, these false teachers, who claimed to be true teachers, 
And they would say to these believers, you don't have to be all out like Antipas, you know, to make a stand for Christ. Isn't it better if you are part of society in the wrong way now? Isn't it better that you go to the banquets? Isn't it better uh, that you do just drop a little incense in the temple and pay lip service to Caesar as God? You don't mean it, of course, but it will give you influence. And so this tendency, that's what it is, uh, it was coming into the church and it was causing the believers to drift, right? The word Pergamos means married. And we as Christians are betrothed to Christ. He's our bride, we are the bridegroom, and one day we're going to be married to him. And what was happening in Pergamos was that these Christians, true believers, were becoming unfaithful to their bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. A marriage is a covenant, isn't it? A covenant is a solemn agreement. We've got a marriage, hopefully, in our church the end of July. We will witness two people making a covenant. Now, I want to look tonight at, we're going to finish looking at Jesus' letter to this church in Pergamos. Think of the marriage covenants. Jesus gives a covenant warning first to these believers who are beginning to become unfaithful in the relationship, right? Because of the influence of the Nicolaitans. So he gives a covenant warning. And then, of course, we look at the positive, which is the covenant promise. So the covenant warning, it's very scary. Let me read the verse again. Verse 16. These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam as we looked last time. Verse 16. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The false teachers subtly sowing seeds of doubts, causing genuine Christians to go away gradually after other idols. Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ subtle? Thank God he isn't subtle. Look at the way he describes himself. He who has the sharp two-edged sword. In chapter 1, that's in the vision that John had of Christ. And the sharp two-edged sword, where did it come out of? It came out of the mouth of Christ. What have we got here? It's the word of God, my friends. The word of Satan is subtle. We get taken in by it. He can transform himself into an angel of light. The word of Christ is clear. Don't you thank God for the clarity of the word? And what Jesus is saying is this. 
You can't tolerate false teaching. You can't. However subtle it may be, it's got to be rooted out. Or, and this is what gives me the creeps, if you don't, I will sort it out. Doesn't that frighten you? I will come quickly and deal with the Nicolaitans. Uh, this is how Warren Wearsby put it. Antipas had felt the sword of Rome. He'd been uh, put to death. But the church at Pergamos would feel the sword of Christ. What's the sword of Christ? It's the word uh, as we started our service the word quick and powerful and sharper than any Roman two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, these Nicolaitans with their doctrine of Balaam, they had seduced so many of the believers in Pergamon, but they can't fool Christ. They can't. My friend, do you believe in the coming of Jesus Christ in judgment, not only in the second coming, but when he says here, I will come to you quickly, verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly. Do you believe that there's such a thing as a visitation of Jesus Christ upon his church in judgments, in judgments? He's saying to the church at Pergamon, if you don't purify yourself, this is what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was doing to them. It was causing them, in effect, if you pardon the phrase, to get into bed with the culture. It was causing the church to be so compromising that you couldn't tell the difference between the believers and the world. The church was basically the world with a religious veneer to it. And Jesus is saying, deal with this. Come back to me. Or I will come. And I will come in judgment. Where is the church in Pergamon today? You know, in the first century, Asia Minor was a Bible belt of churches. Asia Minor is modern Turkey. Modern Turkey today, there are missionaries there, thank God, but it's a spiritual desert. A spiritual desert. I often mention Wynne and Angela and the work God has called them to in West Wales. West Wales is a spiritual desert today. A hundred years or so ago, West Wales was a Bible belt. One of the largest chapels in West Wales was Tabernacle, Aberystwyth, a Welsh Calvinistic chapel. Why do I say was? I say that because it's no longer there. Jesus Christ judged the churches, did he not? If you drive across Wales, you will find even in the middle of nowhere, chapels, maybe not quite as big as this chapel, but still able to hold a few hundred people in the middle of nowhere. And when those were built, they were filled to capacity. The gospel would have been preached. 
And what happened? What happened was this. In the middle of the 19th century, I know I'm going to give you some history here, but this helps to show how we can be seduced. That's the word. We can be tricked to go away from Christ. And we're thinking that we're serving him. But what we're doing is serving the culture. And as somebody said, if you marry the spirit of the age, you will be a widow in the next generation. And that's what's happened to the churches, even in our own land. So in the middle of the 19th century, it was the golden age of the churches in Wales. They were everywhere. The gospel was being preached everywhere. And then the Nicolaitans came in. They came into the Bible colleges. They came into the pulpits. And they said to the preachers, you've got to adapt your message to the culture that you're in. So the middle of the 19th century was the time when Darwin's theory of evolution was coming in. And so preachers started adapting their messages to fit that kind of theory. And uh, preachers started to question because science was coming in and the Enlightenment. And there's nothing wrong with science in its rightful place. But uh, these preachers were taking it too far and they were denying the miraculous in the Bible. They got rid of the divinity of Christ. And in the end, you had no Bible left. And those churches, right, at the end of the 19th century were still packed. They were still packed. But they only had a name to live by. Christ had withdrawn in many of them the candlestick. All they became were religious social centers, renowned for their cultural activities and their gamanvaganis. If you're Welsh, you'll know what I'm referring to, the singing festivals. And when the two world wars came, that basically emptied those chapels. Because what was the point what was the point of singing if you're dying in the trenches? That doesn't give you a hope of heaven, does it? They lost the gospel because they tried to accommodate themselves to their culture. That's the kind of seduction we are talking about. And this is the scary thing. It's people like you and me that are in danger of being seduced. So what does Jesus Christ say here? He says, repent. Repent of this kind of influence. Leonard Cohen, singer-songwriter, he sang, repent, they say, repent, but I don't know what they meant. I don't want you to leave this service tonight thinking like that. What do we need to repent of? You will say to me, Pastor, we're not like those chapels you've described in the 19th century. Thank God we're not. We are, by God's grace, making a stand, aren't we? For the gospel. We are, by God's grace, making a stand for what the Bible teaches concerning right and wrong. We are making a stand for marriage in a time where there is great confusion. So, how can we accommodate ourselves to the culture in which we are living in? There's no point talking about things which we are not in danger of following. 
notice how Jesus ends this letter. When we talk about repentance, we've got to start here. Verse 17, he, notice, not plural, singular, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it must always start with me. So I know I'm a preacher tonight, and I have to preach to you, <laughs> the congregation, but where does repentance start? It always starts with me. What have I got to repent of? What have you personally got to repent of? There's no point saying so-and-so have got to repent. What have I got to repent of? What have I got to turn away from and turn back to Christ concerning? And I think it is useful here to realize Pergamon, being married, we are betrothed to Christ. And surely the first thing we need to search our hearts regarding in terms of accommodating our lives, is are there any areas in our lives, or in our hearts even, where we are beginning to go away from Christ? How did Cooper put it? He prayed it, didn't he, in his famous hymn. This is personal repentance. The dearest idol. What's your dear idol? What's your darling idol, as the Puritans would have said? Your darling sin. The dearest idol I have known. Whatever that idol be. Help me, Lord, to tear it from the throne and worship only thee. Worship only thee. Is there something you are making a Christ of? It can be something innocent in and of itself, but it's taking the wrong place in your hearts. So we must start there. Personal repentance. But then, of course, there's corporate repentance, isn't there? Corporate repentance. What are we to repent of as evangelicals now? What are we to repent of? Aren't we in danger of tailoring our gospel to the culture which we find ourselves in? I've lost count now of the number of times some of our missionaries have shared with me how a number of evangelical missionary societies have changed because now they say to some of our missionaries who have left those missionary societies, they say to them, how can you talk about sin? We can't use that word today. That's how they, they say it. And these are evangelicals now, right? How can you talk about sin? How can you talk about the wrath of God? How can you talk uh, about these things? Well, my friend, what's the point of being a missionary otherwise? Where does the cross come in? If there's no sin, what's the point of Jesus' death on the cross? If there's no wrath of God, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Can you see the point? If, because of the times we're living in, we're trying to water down those things, what we're doing is watering down the very essence of our message. We're trying to fit the gospel into our culture. And I know missionaries and young people, even in Christian unions, who are making a stand over this. And it's tough, it's tough. but God will honour them. Are we determined to stick to the word, whatever the culture may be around us? Now, I've mentioned an example there to do with the gospel, but it 
can be to do with our lifestyle. The word, the word. Are we going to be more influenced by the word than our surrounding culture? It's tragic, isn't it? When the culture dictates to the church, it should be the other way around. The church influencing the culture. That's what happened in Wales in the start of the 19th century. Pastor, you say, how, how can I? How can I do it? I feel as pressurized as the believers did in Pergamos. You don't know what it's like uh, in the world. Yes, I do. I was there once. Maybe I don't know what it's like now, but I know the pressures to a point, to a point. Jesus talks here about he who overcomes. How do we overcome? Overcome is to be victorious. How do we do it? Let me quote 1 John. 1 John, is it 5, 4? This is the victory that overcomes the world. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? Even our faith. Even our faith. How can I, poor me, ever make a stand in a pressurized environment? How can I, if I'm a preacher, ever make a stand? How will you going to be going into the ministry? How can you make a stand when there's so much pressure? It is possible that preachers might find themselves in big trouble in years to come just for remaining faithful to the word. How can we stay faithful? We believe in our Saviour, that he's in control. He who holds the sword. It's not the Romans who ultimately hold the sword of authority. It is King Jesus. Lord, help me. Can you pray this? Lord, help me to trust you implicitly, implicitly. And remain faithful to you. Come what may. Come what may. As long as I'm faithful to you. That doesn't mean being foolhardy, right? That doesn't mean... <laughs> uh, not adapt. There's a right way of adapting, isn't there? What did we sing? Chosen to be soldiers. It's not just preachers. We're all soldiers. Chosen to be... We've lost the battle language, haven't we? That, I think, is the culture affecting the church. We're no longer militants. We're afraid of being militants. But the New Testament is full of battle language. Chosen to be soldiers in an alien land. Chosen, called, and faithful for a captain's band. <laughs> He's the captain. Yes, I can be strong in him and in the power of his might. In the service royal. Oh, uh, did you watch the funeral yesterday? There's something about royalty, isn't there? That sends a shiver down your spine. Well, let me tell you, the royal family are nothing in comparison to the royal family of heaven. And we've got the commander, Jesus Christ. In the service royal, let us not grow cold. Let us be right loyal, noble, true and bold. Master, thou will keep us by thy grace divine. 
Always on the Lord's side, Saviour always thine. Praise God. That's what enables even a poor Christian who feels like a wimp to be strong. This is the victory that overcomes our faith. Douglas Kelly, I can thoroughly recommend Douglas Kelly's commentary. He's semi-preterist, right? Which means he sees most of the prophecies as already been fulfilled. But he, he writes in this way, Renewed faith in Christ is precisely what is needed to win battles against the ungodly pressures against us. No matter how terrible we have failed God, if we will now exercise faith and its twin sister repentance, that's good, isn't it? If we now exercise faith and its twin sister repentance, God will start us afresh, forgive us and give us a road to victory. What beautiful twin sisters, faith and repentance. Don't have the ugly sisters of fear and compromise. They are ugly, aren't they? The beautiful sisters of faith and repentance. Thank God for a saviour who gives people a second chance. Thank God for a Jesus who took a Peter that wept bitterly because he'd fallen and failed his saviour. He took him and put him on his feet and enabled him to be strong even unto death. So that's the covenant warning, the covenant warning. And then very, very quickly, because we're COVID aware, the covenant promise, the covenant promise. What is going to happen to us if we are faithful? Oh, listen to this. Uh, If we do repent, uh, the middle of verse 17, to him who overcomes, I will give something. What are you going to give, Jesus? Listen to this. The hidden manna, the hidden manna to eat. What is this? What's the manna? Back in the book of Exodus, when Israel was traveling through the wilderness, God provided this supernatural food, manna from heaven. Do you know what manna is? It was like corn or wheat, and it fell on the ground every morning like dew, and people picked it up, and they made bread or whatever else they could bake out of it. And that was their food for their pilgrimage through the desert. And we, my friends... Our pilgrims, that means we're traveling through this world, and this world is a wilderness, spiritually. We are soldiers in an alien land. And what Jesus promises us is this. However much of a howling wilderness it may be, he will provide, he will give us that heavenly manner. Now, don't you find that thrilling? Jesus Christ said in a sermon, one of his most spiritual messages, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The people were asking him to give manna to them, as Moses did. And Jesus said, I am that manna. You don't need Moses' bread anymore. I am what that manna signified. Who cares if we can't go to the banquets because we're Christians, because we're barred from them? Who cares if we don't have promotion in work? Who cares if we can't go to the top universities? You know, the nonconformists in Wales in the 19th century, the people who went to chapel, they weren't allowed to go to Oxford or Cambridge to study. That's why you had universities set up like Bangor and Aberystwyth and Cardiff. Did you know that? Uh, That was an aside. (laughs) Who cares? Because we've got Christ to feed on Christ. All that thrills my soul 
is Jesus. And it's hidden because the world only sees the outside and it judges us on the outside. And it judges us, doesn't it? It judges the church in Pergamon. Who are you? You're just a, a small bunch of people. You have no influence at all. And who are we? We may not look much, but we have a hidden manner. The secret life of Christ in us. You know, the outward man is perishing, it's decaying, but there's an inner man that's being renewed day by day. Uh, what did um, Jesus say to his disciples? You know, Jesus was hungry uh, at a well in Samaria and he sent his disciples into the town to get some food. And Jesus was witnessing to the woman at the well and he forgot completely about his hunger. And his disciples said to him, you've got to eat. Do you know what Jesus said? I have food to eat which you don't know about. It is possible for us as Christians, even when outwardly it looks as if everything is going against us, we can say there is something inside of us that is keeping us going. That hidden manner, that hidden manner. Um, do you know what the word manner means in Hebrew? Do you know what the word manner means in Hebrew? What is it? I'm not asking the question again. That's what it means. <laughs> The word manner in Hebrew, this is what the commentators say now, right? I'm not a Hebrew expert. They say the word manner means, what is it? Well, isn't that the point of God's provision? I don't know how God has provided. What is it? I don't know. I don't know where it's come from. Douglas Kelly again. This is the secret of God's provision. For people who exercise faith in Christ... God provides for them, and they do not know where it came from, nor how it got there. It has a heavenly explanation. God is going to take care of you. His supernatural overruling providence will take care of you, physically as well as spiritually. All I have needed. Can you say that? All I have needed. Thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. And to me, I've got example after example I could give you. I'll just limit myself to one. George Muller. This is Muller. Uh, in his early 90s, that's a good age to reach, isn't it? He was interviewed and asked the following question. You have always found the Lord faithful to his promise, Muller? What kind of God is he? Muller responded, always. He has never failed me for nearly 70 years. How, how long have you been following Christ? For 70, I don't think it's going to be 70 years. But for Muller, for nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work the orphanages has been supplied. The orphans from the first until now have numbered 9,500, but they've never wanted a meal, never. Hundreds of times we have commenced the day without a penny in hand, but our heavenly father has sent supplies by the moments they were actually required. There never was a time when there was no wholesome meal. During all these years, I have been enabled to trust in God, in the living God, and in him alone. One million four hundred thousand pounds, this is the end of the 19th century, have been sent to me in answer to prayer. We have wanted as much as 50,000 pounds in one year. 
and it has all come by the time it has really been needed. Praise God. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I just want to encourage you. Trust, trust in him. He will not let you down. He will provide, he will provide. And then one last uh, promise. The white stone, the white stone. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What's the white stone? In the time of the New Testament, it was given in the games uh, to the winner. It was also given as a token to admit you into the banquets and the festival. And it was also used in a court of law to acquit somebody who had been charged. So, in terms of the church in Pergamos, Uh, The accuser of the brethren, Satan, was stirring up the authorities to falsely charge them. Jesus says, I will vindicate you. I will give you that white stone. Uh, They uh, are pressurized to compromise, but through faith they are going to overcome. So the white stone is signifying the victory over the world. And because of their knowledge of Jesus Christ, they have banquets, admissions into spiritual feasts that the world knows nothing of. Putting all that together, what does it mean? Surely it means intimacy. Intimacy. Pergamon is marriage. I keep on saying that. A married couple... The closer they are, the more intimate the relationship. An intimate couple share secrets, don't they? My brother and sister, it is possible (laughs) to walk so close to Christ, to walk so softly with him, that by his Spirit, he shares his secrets with you. Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. In the end, when we are really under pressure, if persecution was to come, it is possible to have a white stone given by Christ, to have his name written on our hearts. So even if we're in prison, As Samuel Rutherford, I think, wrote during one of his imprisonments, a prison cell can be turned into a palace because our beloved bridegroom makes himself known to us. Some of you remember Hubert Clements preaching in our church. Were you here when he preached before I started as pastor? Hubert, before that, had been in hospital and he was uh, seriously ill. And he, was, he shared this with you here, so it's all right for me to repeat it. He was very depressed in the hospital. And he didn't know what to do. And his wife would visit him every evening and try to cheer him up, but to no avail. And then one evening, his wife came. And she found Hubert completely transformed. His face was glowing. And she said, what's happened to you? And he answered, I've had a visitor. 
I've had a visitor. And she knew what he meant. Jesus Christ had visited him. And when Jesus sometimes does that, he gives intimations to you. He shares some of his secrets. Can, can I finish with this? Helen Rosevier, who I think is the only woman to have ever stood where I'm standing now in our church. And we can, we can forgive her that because she experienced revival <laughs> uh, in uh, the center of Africa. And she shared an experience of a premature birth in the jungle. And if the baby was to survive, it needed a hot water bottle, right? You don't buy hot water bottles in the jungle. They're not needed. So the Sunday school sets to pray that the Lord would provide a hot water bottle for the baby. And lo and behold, a hot water bottle arrived just in time. And it came somewhere from Scotland. Now, why am I ending with that? God will provide the hidden manner. They prayed, he provided. But this is the more amazing thing. For that hot water bottle to have arrived, it would have required several weeks to transport it even before the birth of the premature baby. So this is the point. The Lord intimated to somebody in Scotland weeks before that they were to send a hot water bottle to Central Africa. That doesn't make sense, does it? You don't send a hot water bottle to a tropical country. But the secret of the Lord was with that person in Scotland and the Lord provided, even hearing the prayers of the Sunday school class. Isn't our Father wonderful? Why, oh why, do we listen to the counsel of Balaam, the words of the Nicolaitans, who tell us that we can just compromise a bit, you know? Oh no. May we be steadfast in standing firm for Jesus Christ. And in following him, so that this church will not have a name only to live by, but it will have Christ in the midst. And may we know those sweet intimations of Jesus sharing with us and providing for our every need. I must stop there. Uh, we've gone over time. We'll sing now, guide me. O oh, thou great Jehovah, pilgrim in this barren land, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with my, thy powerful hand, and I've chosen it because of the next line, bread of heaven, that's the manna. Feed me now and evermore. We'll stand and we can't sing it out loud, I'm afraid.
Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.